Talkers. Welcome to this currently untitled Star Wars show within a show where my old friend Andy Hurley and I are going to talk about Star Wars all the time. <laughs> We've just been talking about Star Wars a lot anyway and figured as workaholics and pop culture obsessives, we may as well do something productive with it. And so here we are. Exactly. We have a group message all about Star Wars and Marvel, and it just made sense to uh, have actual conversations about it instead of text threads. Endless, endless text threads. We could, we really could have made a podcast out of just reading our text threads to each other, but <laughs> new conversations <laughs> seemed, seemed more exciting. And we should set the stage for people listening that may or may not or probably don't know this, but I don't know what year we actually met, but we've been friends for a long time at this point. Yeah, I'd have, I'd say it's probably 96, 97, 98. Definitely somewhere in there. If I had, if I had, if I had to bet money on it, I would say 97 now that you say that. Yeah. That sounds about right. So yeah, so we've, we've known each other for a number of years and like a lot of long enduring friendships, you know, sometimes go periods, long periods of, of no contact and then periods of lots of contact and everything between. So this is also a good excuse to make a regular friend appointment to catch up and hang out. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to kick off with this first episode talking a little bit about our relationship to Star Wars as a phenomenon over the course of our lives thus far, what it's meant to us, what it continues to mean to us, the sort of love-hate relationship that most most of us fans have and get into some of the things that we plan to be talking about as we go forward. But as we're launching on May the 4th, which was honestly a happy coincidence, we just happened to yep. be ready to go before either of us realized it was going to be May the 4th today. We should talk about some of the news. Disney Plus today put up the final episode, the series finale of The Clone Wars. They put Rise of Skywalker on Disney Plus. They put up the first episode of that behind the scenes of The Mandalorian thing that they're doing. And That's right. I think... Perhaps most excitingly, after a lot of rumors in this direction, they officially announced that Taika Waititi will be directing some type of Star Wars film. Which is excellent. And co-writing. And co-writing. I actually didn't catch that part. I just think that's such... He's the right guy to go forward with, in my opinion. And I think... you know, Have they said anything more about Ryan Johnson's side of things they haven't still have and that's and that's interesting to me because there have been a lot of things officially announced that then sort of disappeared whether it was the ryan johnson trilogy outside the skywalker saga within the star wars universe and then there were the guys from game of thrones who i think came and went and then of course unofficially you know we know that there was a boba fett movie that was happening we know that kenobi was a movie that then got turned into a series which is switch creative teams and this gets into a lot of the stuff that we'll be discussing on this episode in particular about these shake-ups and all that sort of thing but yeah i am yeah a massive man gold for effect. yes 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 that's right i think that could have been good but probably the right call to axe it and then of course we have all these great Disney Plus shows coming. There's The Mandalorian Season 2. There is the Cassian Andor series, which the new showrunner for that 
I believe is the uh, Tony Gilroy, the guy who basically did the reshoots on and the story reworking uh-huh. on Rogue One, which I think yeah. was effective. We liked Rogue, Rogue One. Very much so. And then there is a female-centric show in the works from Leslie Headland, who did the Netflix series Russian Doll, which I did not watch. Have you watched that? I have not watched it. Natasha Leone, I think, was the star of that from Orange is the New Black, and I like her. I'll, I'll check out an episode Yeah, now that it relates to Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Same. <laughs> oh, it says, uh, joining Watiti on the screenplay will be Academy Award nominee Christy Wilson Cairns, who did 1917. Oh, gnarly. Which is cool. Yeah, you can tell that I saw Taika Waititi and copy-pasted and immediately sent it to you and didn't actually read all of it. <laughs> as I'm realizing now as you're reading it back to me. So I was a little late to Taika. I won't pretend that I had the demo or the 7-inch. I was I was aware of what we do in the shadows, and I knew that lots of people I know and respect loved it, but I hadn't gotten around to seeing it. And then Thor Ragnarok just blew my mind in, in all the right ways and has quickly... It, it's my. It's currently number three for me in the MCU as a whole, and is definitely in my household the most rewatched of any Marvel movie. I think of any movie, period. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of the movie that for Marvel that a lot of people I know who hate the Marvel movies, that's the one they like, mm-hmm. and I think that's. Mm-hmm. It, I think it's it's number one for me actually. Now that I look on my letterboxed, but I think. I had to put it there for the exact reason you're saying. It's the one I've seen the most. It's the one I think about the most. And it just kind of transcends the Marvel universe in a way. I'm really excited for what he'll do with Star Wars. Because I think he's the kind of guy, like Ryan Johnson, who, but maybe even more so in a way, because he's free from you know the saga bullshit, he can kind of... He's the kind of guy who's going to do something awesome and radical and and different in his way, and I think that's going to be great. One of the things that's so great about Ragnarok and how it could relate to what you're saying about Star Wars, you know, Chris Hemsworth and Taika Waititi got together and were like, we're going to cut his hair, we're going to take away his hammer, we're going to kill his dad, we're going to blow up Asgard, we're going to, you know, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched it by now, you're insane. But, um, but that was kind of the premise, was taking all these things away. And yet, what is, I think, almost equally important, you know, it's like, like you said, it transcends the MCU, but it's also sort of in it without being of it. Meaning, like, all, all of the, that continuity and stuff is still there if you cared about it. And there's nostalgia, you know, Jack Kirby illustrations, like, coming to life in that movie. And I think... That's what's great about The Mandalorian, and that's what makes me excited about Taika doing a Star Wars movie, is that The Mandalorian hits that nostalgia and canon and continuity, but also has mystery and unexpectedness, and at the same time tells a tight story, which I think Ragnarok, despite introducing a whole bunch of characters and locations and having a lot of stuff happening story-wise, still feels really... Uh, brisk and and tight and I think that's why we're able to rewatch it so many times because it, ju- it just keeps moving and it's entertaining for yeah. every second plus it has the the humor that I think is you know kind of a Kevin Fahey demand for the movie is that it has to have some kind of humor but it has it and it's 
in a really unique way that the right. others don't as well. And another thing it has is it's coming, it's the third movie after two of arguably the worst Marvel movies. And mm. it's not then the best Marvel movie. You know, arguably in the top three, top two, whatever. And I think, you know, coming in, hopefully, I don't know that he'll be the next one because he's doing the next Thor. I'm not sure where that's at in production, but, you know, having to come off such a sour taste in people's mouths for, you know, what's come before in the film world for Star Wars, I think it will be a breath of fresh air for everyone. I hope with all of the creative shakeups behind the scenes and course corrections midway through with all of the Disney star Wars stuff. I hope, you know, maybe that Oscar win, you know, I hope there's enough behind this decision to work with Taika that Kathleen Kennedy will hopefully give him the, and Kathleen Kennedy, whoever, everyone in charge, hopefully they'll give him the same license that Ryan Johnson had to do what he wants with it. And like you said, kind of taking away the baggage of the expectations of the saga and having him do something outside of that. I mean, it really just feels like a perfect situation, perfect storm. Yeah. Agreed. So one thing we will talk about at some point is the clone wars. And my guess is that you were waiting until you could binge this entire final season. Yeah, kind of, I mean, kind of also, uh, show overload there's just mm. too many shows that i kind of shut down but that is one i have to just crank through. and that this I, I will it is quite satisfying <laughs> that's all that's all that's all i will say until you've seen it yeah the feloni knew what he was doing from start to finish and it's it's evident as you finish this final season that it, it, it's just so perfectly put together super happy with it we actually had a, a band uh, visit to Skywalker Ranch, and Filoni was our tour guide. Oh, wow. How have we never talked about that? <laughs> <laughs> it was really cool. And then, well, I guess that kind of follows into, I went to a Star Wars celebration years later, and this is another thing. We could just have stories like this where I was hanging out with him like a whole night and a, and a bunch of other people, like Al Newman, who did that fanboys and um, ran into Mark Hamill, and he just talked to me and my, you know, Carl, like one of my best friends growing up, Carl mm -hmm. from Milwaukee. He he yeah. came with me to he the celebration, and we were just talking to Mark Hamill for like an hour, and he was telling us stories of shooting A New Hope and what he was going for with, you know, his whiny power converter line and and he he was just the nicest dude ever. It was great. Just so every list, every person listening knows this, I was unaware of either of these stories <laughs> when <laughs> when the idea came up between the two of us to do this series. So, I mean, this is talk about added bonus. That, that's that's the price right there. there. I've got a few stories we could dive into. Also, have, you know, from the press side, having covered Star Wars and uh, various configurations. I think the last real set of interviews that I did was when Rogue One was coming out on Blu-ray. I went up to Lucasfilm and spent a day there and, and talked to John Knoll and Alan Tudyk. And, but there, I, I'm not going to have anything close to hanging with, 
with Mark Hamill. <laughs> That's so amazing. It, it was really cool. It was one of the yeah. coolest experiences, like, you know, meeting a celebrity, I guess. That's an episode in the the Filoni Clone Wars stuff. That's an episode, and I bet there's there's more I'll pry out of you that I haven't heard. It will be fun. Sure, this stuff will bubble up to the top of my brain as we talk. Indeed. So let, let's wrap up this intro part, portion by asking uh, of all of the stuff uh, confirmed and otherwise that's in the works right now, what are you most excited about? Kenobi, for me. Yes. Just perfect. Ewan, you know, has wanted to do it for years now since Disney bought the property, pretty much. You know, he's one of the only standouts of the prequel trilogy, and I think it's, I'm just really excited to see what they do. And, and it's almost a thing that just seeing him play Obi-Wan Kenobi is good enough where I don't really care how good or bad it is. I mean, obviously, I want it to be good, and we should have high expectations, and they should meet them. But it will be a pleasure just to see him in that role again. It, my own feeling about it, too, is that I don't think that it needs to accomplish anything super significant story-wise. And what I mean by that is Hermit Obi-Wan could offer us a lot that's meaningful in terms of character and, you know, the, the spiritual side of Star Wars and, and even some of the, those political undertones as, you know, the Empire is tightening its grip and the old Republic is a, is a relic and, and all that sort of stuff. aging. I mean, there's all kinds of places they could go, but, but when I say it, it doesn't need to accomplish anything, I mean, like we already know when Kenobi really comes back and gets involved in the rebellion. It's like, we know a lot of that stuff. I, I don't, I'm not anxious for a bunch of retcons that suddenly show us he was doing all this stuff that was important to the saga during his time there. I would rather see stuff that's important to the character. I, I mean, yeah, it can and should just be a character study of Obi-Wan struggling and dealing with his failure with Anakin and obviously seeing, you know, what Anakin's become. I don't, I, I saw something saying when Obi-Wan realized who Anakin became, mm. when, when you realize that, I don't know when that was, or I didn't read the article. It's in a comic or something, but, you know, I think that's all stuff that would be really cool for him to like a character study of him dealing with all of that. That alone would be great. It does seem like, in terms of mythology, Force Ghost Qui-Gon is, is like all but guaranteed, right? Like, <laughs> that would be great. Especially now that, you know, the Clone Wars established that Qui-Gon was really the, uh, well, I mean, and Revenge of the Sith does too a little bit, but that he was really the first to start to figure out how to do that and pass yep. that knowledge on to Yoda, who passes it to Kenobi it's training for him while he's, while he's in exile. So, yeah, I agree. That's the show I'm the most excited about for all the same reasons you mentioned. Uh, also, and this could, of course, change as more stuff comes out, but my favorite eras in terms of settings, like if I were to have a crack at crafting a standalone story somewhere or something, I love that period of the Clone Wars between 2 and 3, and then I love that period that Rebels and Rogue One are set in between three and four, those are like my two favorite moments on the timeline to explore and trip out on. Yeah, I agree completely. Well, I hope people enjoy this episode. I hope they stick with us and, you know, rate and review and subscribe. 
as we work through our feelings and emotions and, you know, wrestle with Star Wars and what it's become and what it means to us. Perfectly said. And I promise we'll get political and spiritual and hopefully make each other laugh and make people listening laugh and uh, <laughs> nerd out about Star Wars like all of us love to do. When, where, how, why did your relationship to Star Wars begin? Oh, wow. That's that's a big question. Um, I guess I got into it because my older brother, Sean, had a lot of like the toys and uh, the Topps baseball cards <clears throat> and weird like blueprint maps and stuff that I still have from wow. way back then. So that was just really magical and kind of lended itself to being this bigger secret world. And then obviously seeing the movies and watching them on VHS a million times, you know, the movies themselves are obviously magical and are why they, you know, became the pop culture thing that they did. And then special editions coming out, which, you know, obviously ruined the original trilogy, but, was such a cool time because I got to see it again in the theater mm -hmm. and like skip school and, you know, create these awesome memories that I still have of doing that. And then just the, you know, before that happened, the years where nothing happened and then the special editions happened and then years longer until the prequels happened, but you didn't know that, that was going to happen until it did. And in those years, you know, kind of the mythology of it becoming bigger and bigger through the books and the video games and the comics and stuff like that. And, and I think that's, you know, really informed me as a person into, you know, my love for, you know, big worlds and things like that. I think what draws me to, you know, this shared universe idea that obviously predates uh, the MCU, which we both love, but that goes back to comic books and all sorts of different franchises. And I've got Dune on my mind right now because of all the stuff that's been coming out recently about the Dune movie that's in production. Yep. But the David Lynch Dune, which I saw when I was really young, uh, all I knew about it was the guy from The Police was in it. Obviously, it's super weird and trippy and crazy, and there's a whole conversation to be had that's been had a million times about what it does or doesn't have to do with the actual books. But um, but it was still a great gateway for me to then discover, like, oh, this is a whole world. Like, there's a bunch of these books. That relationship, too, with uh, V. Do you remember the TV series V? Yeah, that, it was like a big event miniseries that kind of everyone you knew was watching. And I mean, I was in elementary school and then there was a follow-up miniseries, V the Final Battle. And then the popularity of both of those led to a weekly series that only lasted for one season. Even as I got older and through middle school and into high school, I remained a big fan of V and the V universe, despite the fact that there was next to nothing actively happening you know like around the time that the show was on dc comics 
did a V series, which lasted about as long as that one season of the show did. I think it's maybe 12 issues or something. And I bought all of those religiously. There were a bunch of V novels, um, some that adapted the first miniseries and V the final battle. And then one of the, probably the most popular of the V novels was there was one called East coast crisis, which was telling the story of that. We already knew from the miniseries, but from the vantage point of the other coast and just that kind of thing is for me as a little kid kind of tripping out on that idea of like, you know, I mean, it, it's very Clone Wars, <laughs> you know, yeah, totally. of like, here's this like shadow storyline that's happening in concert with the storyline I'm very familiar with that I love. We saw the visitor motherships hovering over certain cities in the TV shows. The books could then explore like, well, what was going on with when the visitors arrived in Tokyo? And there's like this really wacky <laughs> V novel that's like a samurai story. Nice. <laughs> And yeah, and I, I got into all of that stuff, and I and I was I was buying those novels in middle school and high school from like yard sales and you know used bookstores because no one gave a shit. And but there was a toy line that never happened, and there was a, a doll, like a OG GI Joe Barbie doll sized uh, visitor that I really wanted as a kid. And we were poor, and it was expensive. You know, it was like thirty dollars or something. Mm-hmm. And when eBay first launched <laughs> in the 90s, or, or when I became aware of it anyway, uh, probably around the time you and I met, around that era, I made my first eBay purchase of my entire life, which was a visitor doll. That's <laughs> that awesome. I've since I was a little kid. Yeah, I bring up the whole V thing because I think, to your point, obviously there's a, a mass cultural awareness of Star Wars, and if anything... You know, post Rise of Skywalker, maybe there's a little Star Wars fatigue out there in the world, which is crazy to think about. Yeah. As you're sitting here reminding of all those periods where there was nothing. Yeah, totally. The stuff that was being published, whether it was like the Dark Horse comics or, you know, the, the Timothy Zahn stuff, all that sort of stuff that was out there, like you really had to seek it out and you really had to be somebody that was still carrying that torch. You know, for some folks who are, are you know, a lot younger than us or, for, pe- for people to really have perspective on how many periods in Star Wars fandom, despite how massive it is, were really dry. And yeah, really, it had a lot of lulls, ups and downs. And so for me, I'm like, I think six or seven years older than you. So I did see the original trilogy in the theater, but I don't have, you know, I was so young that I don't have much memory of sitting in my seat watching it of any of them except for Return of the Jedi. The 77 original I saw on the back of the family station wagon, and I was not yet four years old, so, you know, toddler style. Like a little flash of memory of like a, of being in the station wagon at the drive-in theater and a stormtrooper being on the screen. That's, <laughs> and that's awesome. literally it. Sidebar, then, they should bring back drive-in theaters. God, especially right now. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that would be perfect right now. There is one uh, called Mission Tiki in Inland Empire in Southern California. And uh, I discovered it. A couple of buddies of mine who are huge podcast muses who have been podcasting since like 2009 or something. Uh, Alonzo Duralde and Dave White, they are a pair of film critics in West Hollywood. Their podcast is called Linoleum Knife. Anyway, uh, Alonzo 
always has uh, birthday parties at Mission Tiki. That's how I discovered it. Is I got invited to one of those, and uh, and then I've I've been back a few times, and it seems like it does okay, which I think is probably because there are so few left that people are driving there from L.A. and Orange County and the Valley, and just to get that drive-in experience. How many years older than you is your older brother? Um, I would say twelve. I think. Oh wow! So they're pretty big age yeah. difference. Yeah. I, I always think my brother and I have a big age difference because we're five years apart. But of course, as you and I know now as adults, you know, when one of you is 11 and the other one's 16, you might as well be 100 years apart. But yeah, totally. by the time you get to like late 20s, early 30s, it's like we're all the same age. It's all the same, <laughs> yeah. I have friends who are in their early 50s and friends who are in their early 30s, and I'm in my mid-40s now, and it feels like we're all the same age. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Punk and hardcore definitely have a huge effect on that reality for us, I think. Yes, I, I totally agree. It's uh, It keeps us youthful in a way that, and I don't know, you know, I like to think not in a self-delusional, you know, Steve Buscemi meme, hello fellow kids, yeah, or whatever. Totally. But in a way that, you know, like our parents' generations just wasn't. Yeah, I mean, they, when you were like 25 and you were like, an adult then in a way that just hasn't been a truism for us. I did a rewatch of the Sopranos a year or two ago and somewhere in season one, Tony Soprano like exasperated proclaims to Dr. Melfi, I'm 40 years old. And I'm watching that going like, uh, wow. Older than Tony Soprano. (laughs) Yeah. That's very (laughs) weird to think about. My dad, you know, yeah, like, like he's like a dad. He's like a grown ass man, and I'm like, wow, I'm, yeah, I'm older than he was at the start of that show. Yep, that's that's really weird to think about. Yeah, my brother is five years older, so it was like we, we just missed each other in every era of school. He was getting the action figures when I was too little to really know what's up, and so my memory of Empire. I know I saw it in the theater. I don't remember seeing it in the theater, but what I do remember is my brother and I being on the hunt for a Yoda action figure because Yoda, for some reason, was really difficult to find. And again, it's like all these things we know as adults now, like it's probably, you know, they get these boxes of 24 figures and there's 10 Lukes and one Yoda or whatever. (laughs) But yeah. It was probably scarcity by design, but at the time it was it was just a, such a hot commodity. And I remember we finally found the figure and we got one, and I was just so fascinated with it because I didn't I don't know if the maybe the movie wasn't even out yet or if I just hadn't seen it yet, but I vividly remember not knowing anything about Yoda and just tripping out on like he has a snake and a little wooden staff and like yeah. he's tiny like what is this guy crazy. I mean, I so, think yeah, then, Star Wars was at the forefront of, of that kind of, uh, I don't know, marketing campaign where, you know, they release a lot of the toys and figures and stuff before the movies. So you're really left coming up with your own stories for the characters that you don't know. Yeah, that's a great point. And also they were kind of famously so, you know, it's often parodied. I, I still think it's awesome. But, you know, they would make action figures of, like, a character that <laughs> was on screen for, like, a split second in the background. 
and then that character would have an action figure and then a story would, and of course now it's, everything's getting filled in, but back then, yeah, it was mostly left to your imagination. Like what's Hammerhead all about? What's, uh, you know, what's Bosk doing other than in the couple of minutes we saw him in Empire. Yeah, totally. Which is what, you know, made it so cool. And movies now seek to explain everything. And obviously that I think has had a, deleterious effect on like you know things being special like the the things that drew us to it in the first place yeah that that sense of mystery and wonder and uh, filling in some gaps with your imagination and there are you know of course we all had a vision in our mind of obi-wan and darth vader's duel that you know put him in the suit and there was a volcano involved or something. And, you know, we, we knew this stuff, but we hadn't seen it. And then, and in a sense there was, whenever we did see that, it was always going to be disappointing, right? Because it could never live up to anyone's idea. And this isn't to say that it was executed super well. Yeah. Um, but even had it been, there would be some contingent of fans that would, still be unhappy with it because it's just, it's been allowed to grow and exist for so long. And now that the fandom, so many of us are adults, you have people really overanalyzing and, uh, you know, putting themselves in the shoes of the creators, which isn't something we did as kids. Now we can look at it and go like, Oh, this dumb writer made this dumb choice. Whereas, you know, coming up, it was more of a esoteric, like distant, mysterious thing that we didn't even quite understand how it was made. It just existed. And we, learned about it yeah absolutely i mean i think with age you kind of see the the wizard behind the curtain you know and you see that it's just yeah some writer who threw you know had some throwaway story for where a person came from and then it became you know boba fett becomes so much bigger than was intended and is you know maybe for some people a huge reason they love it like all all those different characters and and storylines i understand the argument from the standpoint of the really bare bones purists and i'm reminded of uh, I, I did an interview with rob zombie a few years ago and it was either i suppose it was probably right before the force awakens came out when the when the hype was at its maximum but no one had seen it yet and the the poll quote that i used for my interview was Rob saying, I was excited about Star Wars in 1977. I'm not <laughs> anymore. <laughs> yeah. And and one of the points he made is is he was like, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he was he was like, you know, Chewbacca, like, yeah, there's this cool character. He's like a big dog or a carpet or something, and he's got a crossbow and he's he roars instead of using language and and then he's like, and then somebody decided, you know what would be cooler than Chewbacca? A thousand Chewbaccas on a Chewbacca planet. And it's like, okay, yeah, I get <laughs> I get that criticism, but I also know that I'm I'm a total mark for it because I am that fan that's like, yeah, a thousand Chewbaccas on a yeah. Chewbacca planet is awesome. <laughs> do that. Do exactly that. I want to see that. So I I, I get the, you know the different angles that different fans of this stuff yeah absolutely and i do too i i'm starting to maybe 
lean more towards uh, Rob Zombie's take that, you know, I'm kind of, I listened to a podcast where they were talking, they had a really good point about like what delineates the different eras, the original trilogy being kind of, you know, very driven by storytellers and artists, the prequel trilogy being driven by a guy who thinks that it's his and he knows what it's about and no one and, and being an untouchable person who no one can offer any criticism to yeah. and obviously missing the mark completely. And then, you know, the modern trilogy being a corporate takeover of, of what it was. They, they are d- trying to distill what they thought it was, but trying to do it for every single person and, and, and every single uh, fan base, every, every different group of people will find something they love when that's not how real art works. Real art kind of works yes. as a specific vision from a person or, you know, it can be a group of people. I think the original, original trilogy was a group of people coming up with it, obviously. You know, I, I think A New Hope was very, has a lot to thank his original wife for. And then yeah. Empire, obviously, and Return of the Jedi, you know, he didn't have his, he, he wasn't writing them or directing them to the same extent, at least. And I'm kind of seeing it that way. I, like the original was this revolution in filmmaking and storytelling and, and all of that. And, you know, the toys aspect and, you know, the multimedia vision of it existing in all these different formats and, and art forms. And then, the snake kind of eating its own tail and, and and that being the thing that ultimately ruins it also. There's a purity of art when it's created in a vacuum. You know, and certainly as he was making the 1977 Star Wars, he wanted everyone to see it and it for, for it to be a success. But it was still very much, you know, a, a product of, of just those people that were there in the thick of it doing it and, and not having any outside influences in terms of whether it's direct involvement from people meddling with it, but even more so expectations. Once you've done that first thing, good or bad, you know, I mean, of course there's countless examples of, of uh, especially in, with music more so than movies where artists improved as records went on, but there's something about that initial purity. And I think it's why we hear so often like, Oh, I haven't liked that band since the demo or, you know, the certain people that hold on to that with certain bands, because there is something about the magic of that vacuum of creation of that purity of intent where they're not beleaguered by all of the expectations and responsibilities that come with album two and album three and album four, yeah, you know, and just absolutely. how it inevitably changes. Yeah, I completely agree. It's just hard to say. I mean, like you said, there's definitely bands that do get better, like Metallica. It's just interesting to kind of analyze that and and see, try to maybe figure out, find the thread of when things go right and evolve and become better and when things don't. But I, I do think, in general, there is always going to be something more magical about the first thing that had no audience and 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 it wasn't being done for anyone but the people creating it and i think that's where our shared punk rock history comes into play and 
one of the things why I think the Metallica model has been so successful. They have continued to do what they want to please themselves first, pretty much every step of the way when they've done things that certain segments of their fans haven't been happy with, you know, sink or swim, like win or lose, it's the band's vision. And they did it with intention of making their own statement as opposed to, you know, trying to cater to any sort of demands or, you know, records by committee. Yeah, it's, absolutely. it's interesting too. Like you ask, you know, like what's, what causes that fork in the road, like to go left or right with, with different franchises and bands and whatever. And, you know, on the one hand, when something gets more popular, now you suddenly have more resources. And I think this ties back into, you mentioned the special editions and the, the changes and everything and, and your personal unhappiness with them, which I think is shared by so many fans. Yeah. Lucas, I think, has more of that band argument of like, you know, well, dude, we made our first record in like two weeks and we had $5,000. It sucks. I wish we could have, you know, now we're able to make this second record and we have like a real budget and a real studio and a real producer and we can make it the way that we want it to be. That would, that's probably Lucas's vantage point on doing oh, those totally. special editions, right? Yeah. I just think um, that's then, an incorrect vantage point because of the fact that you're stacking it onto this already existing thing instead of mm. making a new thing uh, or, or making the, starting the prequels then being like, okay, I could have done that. Well, now I'm going to do that for the, the prequels that I, you know, always had in the back of my mind. Dude, that is a great point that I've never thought of. That, You're so I think right that's the better that. approach to it. It's why Metallica has resisted calls to remix and justice for all. When they started doing those collector box sets, people expected like, oh, they're going to put the bass back in it. And uh, and even Jason Newstead, who was rather famously robbed of his sonic presence on that album, mm -hmm. even he has said, don't fuck with it. It is what it is. It was made the way that it was. It's a time and a place. It sounds that way. That's what everyone's used to. That's how we've all heard it for all of these years. Totally. Don't mess around with it. You're right. And uh, yeah, obviously we all know that the issue with the special editions was Lucas tinkering what's there, but I never really thought about it in those terms that you just described where it's like, yeah, you didn't, you know, in your band, you didn't suddenly have more reset, more resources and more time and more of an opportunity to make things sound how you wanted and then just redo all your old records. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and another thing with the special edition is the, some of the things he added were so like minuscule and, and pointless. It's like, that's really, you, you thought of like what you would have done and it's add a couple do backs and, you know, like yeah. a little more with size noodles or whatever. Like th that's just fake. Personally, I don't have any issue with making a bigger and better explosion or, you know, I know there's True. some people that are such purists that they enjoy, you know, when you can like see a hand in a puppet or whatever, you know, yeah. Yeah. that sort of thing. Um, I don't mind fixing, cleaning up that sort of stuff, but yeah, to your point, the stuff just visually distracting because it's so incongruent with everything else. Yeah. From the town. And also it's like, okay, I get it that you didn't have the resources to make Moss Eisley as populated as you wanted it to be, or as busy as you wanted it to be, but now it's too busy. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> it, 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 it would be like, yeah, uh, if Jason Newstead was like, yeah, I'm going to go back and redo the bass on Injustice for All, and suddenly it's like, it sounds like Flea is playing in Metallica. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's too much. Like, you're overcompensating now for what you didn't get to do then. I have two more points. One, I guess it's fine if he wants to do all of that stuff. If, you know, we still had the option of, you know, getting Blu-rays with 
originals, which we still can't, right? And two, my other point was, back to my original point, why couldn't he have used him wanting Maz Eisley to be more populated as like a story point he could make in the prequels where, you know, whatever reason, when the Empire took over, you know, population dropped in Maz Eisley because things were so bad and resources were so scarce because of that, you know, authoritarianism or whatever. Like you said, you know, listen to Justice for All. We've listened to it for however long, you know, however many years as that. We've seen Moss Eisley for however many years the way it was. There's just no point. No one cares. It doesn't change anything. Yeah. We don't We don't need to see little mouse droids. Yeah. I mean, around. it's <laughs> kind of the beginning of the point where you, you start to see that George Lucas doesn't understand what makes Star Wars Star Wars. He thinks that's what makes oh. Star Wars Star Wars. Like, he's way off. And then obviously with the prequels he just let loose this thing that it w- wasn't. There's the whole argument about when you create art, book, album, movie, whatever, painting, and you decide that it's time to give it to the world, is it still yours? Because, you know, to your point, and I agree with you, Lucas seems to miss the the very essence of what made his creation so special. But to play devil's advocate... Is it presumptuous of us to, you know, tell the guy that made it he doesn't get it? Or is that just the nature of the beast? Are, are there a bunch of examples like that? Are there bands that made records that are so great and then proved in later years that they didn't understand what made them great? Or Oh, absolutely. I'm sure there are. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of things to it. I think, of course, he has the right to do whatever he wants with it. But I think the original trilogy was a collaborative effort. It wasn't just him. Again, he can he can do what he wants. I think it was pretty obvious that he was pretty untouchable for the prequels where you, people just couldn't tell him things sucked or if they did, he wouldn't listen. For, from what I understand, it was pretty known that you couldn't really, you know, mess with it. And that's just unfortunate. I think a, a big part of the original trilogy was that it was so collaborative. And there there was a real point to it. Wasn't the the rebels the Viet Cong against American Empire? And literally calling the the army of the empire stormtroopers, like yeah, is it you know really driving the fascist point home? Yeah, and then the prequels just become bogged down in you know political drama in a way that's you know obviously he aged and became a lot more liberalized and just kind of missed that aspect of the original trilogy, you know the political aspect, which you know spoke to me at the time and probably was a big part of you know, becoming pretty political, you know, really politicized later in life. Not that, not that the prequel, not that the overarching story of the emperor and kind of mirroring, you know, Germany and stuff, that's a cool thing, a cool approach. Obviously it just wasn't done as well as it could have been, but the idea of it, I, I, I see. Yeah. And the revenge of the Sith you know, you're either with me or you're against me. Only a Sith deals in absolutes really dates it to the George W. Bush era in a way yeah. that, <laughs> in a way that I don't think the original trilogy is so dated, you know, the, the Vietnam allegory and all that stuff was a lot more subtle. And that could again be a, a, an issue of time, place and circumstance. There's so, there was so much more media by the time the prequels were happening and, and we're older. And, but I feel like it, the original trilogy didn't quite clobber you over the head with those themes. It gave you more of a sense of good versus evil in terms of 
you know, backwater farm boy versus the monolithic fascist conformity. Whereas the, by the time the prequels roll around, it's like, yeah, you have you have your movie's villain quoting the president, yeah. the current president. Yeah, yeah. And it's just a lot more bogged down in, in like kind of intricacies of political drama or whatever. In a yeah, way that's opening the film with the, with the Trade Federation dispute. Was... Yeah. And then he says it's for children. <laughs> that, that's not for children. And it wasn't interesting to adults. So did you ever watch the the Mr. Plinkett YouTube reviews of the prequels? One of the points that they make is, you know, the, the Plinkett videos show a lot of the behind the scenes footage of Lucas directing the prequels. You really get the sense that he doesn't want to get out of his chair or stop sipping his coffee. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're just sitting in the same room. <laughs> He's staring at the video village of monitors and there's a couple of actors walking and walking <laughs> and sitting and then walking and then sitting there's so much sitting and so much walk and talk in those prequels. And it's one of those things where once it's pointed out to you, you can't unsee it. Yeah. And one of my biggest problems with the prequels is the, the weightlessness of it all. Oh, absolutely. And and we're seeing now, of course, there's films that are, I mean, the Marvel movies are, they're not any different in terms of, you know, grand battles against Thanos or a bunch of mocap suits and actors standing around in a green bubble. But there's something about the way it's it's utilized in the prequels that just it just feels like nothing, you know. It it feels like people walking down endless, yeah, <laughs> invisible hallways. It really does. Um, I mean, it, I think that would be an interesting thing for maybe another episode to talk about is is comparing MCU with Star Wars or whatever. Maybe yes. going more into that, um, or you know, maybe comparing that to what we're talking about, like the, you know, cause that's a, an example of, of a really corporatized, uh, st- studio or, or, uh, property, but it works really well because they have Kevin Fahey kind of overseeing it all and has a, mm-hmm. a real vision for it and a real care for it, as opposed to Disney's handling of star Wars was obviously no one in the room really had any actual idea of what to do with it. And the thing they did try to do with it was to do everything for everyone. Yes, and and that included multiple course corrections midway, which is astounding. You know, yeah, it's like insane. We hear a lot about reshoots and rewrites, and I think people are starting to understand this too. That's a pretty common. It's a very common aspect of movie making, and has been for a long time. And I, you know, Tommy Boy is one of my favorite comedies of, of all time. And, and while it wasn't well reviewed in its day, I think it's, it's pretty beloved now. And I've watched a bunch of making of and, and behind the scenes and interviews and stuff on that movie, just from loving it over the years. Yeah. They were writing jokes the night before. I mean, there's, there's so many anecdotes of, you know, someone on the set overheard Spade say this to Farley and then said, Hey, that's great. We should actually, work that into the movie and it would show up in the pages the next day. You know, it's not just Batman versus Superman or, you know, the stuff that has a release date and then they're rushing to, you know, they start shooting without a script and that sort of thing. Like that's a lot more common, but to me, what's kind of astounding about the modern star Wars films is yeah. Those mid movie creative team. I think you and I both love rogue one. And Absolutely. It, it, it shouldn't, you know, by all accounts, it shouldn't have turned out as well as it did. So you can make an argument that some of those decisions must have been for the best. Uh, and then there are, 
you know, there's a movie like Solo where you can see the seams of where this movie's been stitched back together. Yeah. <laughs> but I think to kind of bring us full circle for this episode, the point that you made, which I wholeheartedly agree with, about the difference between an artist with a vision, as collaborative as, as it was, you know, an artist with a vision and that original sort of vacuum doing things a certain way and not sort of making it to try to please theoretical people versus the sequel trilogy being sort of the polar opposite of that mm-hmm. fan service and trying to be all things to all people and not being able to to stand under the, the weight of its expectations. There's a really interesting conversation for us to have down the road soon about the difference in the prequel trilogy and the sequel trilogy in that sense. Yeah. Because for all of its many, many, many flaws, the prequel trilogy is very much the product of one dude with a vision who's like, do it this way. No one can tell me no. Nobody can, you know. Absolutely. And I, and I would way. prefer that, honestly. But even if even if I don't let, love the product, I love Star Wars. I love the prequels in, in my way. I love the sequels in my way. And I have critiques and things I hate about all of them. I, I love them and hate them all. <laughs> One thing I did want to say is, yeah, things have always reshot. We just didn't hear about it because, you know, media wasn't what it is now back then. But I think that the things they were kind of adding in, like you said with Tommy Boy, they heard a joke that they thought would work really well. There was like passion to it and like real inspiration to it instead of a committee of, you know, billionaire suits in a office somewhere in their ivory towers deciding, well, it needs more of this because this group of people like this. That You know, that's yeah. what our research shows. Without any sort of point of view. Exactly. Like a big guessing game of like, well, uh, hopefully this would work. Let's try this. <laughs> and with the ultimate point being to sell tickets, for, to make money, instead of the ultimate point being to tell a better story. And that's what sucks about the sequel trilogy is there was hope with Last Jedi, regardless of what people think. I mean, you hear, you heard about Kathleen Kennedy truly believing in and trusting Ryan Johnson, and I love it, and I think you do too. I do. That was really heartening that she believed in it because they really gave him a chance to tell the story he wanted to. And then the next movie just completely eviscerates everything. That came with that, which is, you know, we can get into more in the future, like you said, and and really talk about the differences between the prequels and the sequels. But, you know, I, I just wanted to say that. I think that's one thing that's really maddening about, you know, what's happened with it now. They had 15 years to figure something out. <laughs> and they just didn't. They just, they, they had 15 years, and or let's say a, a couple years from when they bought it, but you know, I'm sure those talks were happening for a while before we heard anything about it. And then it, it came out, out of the gate, it came out like they started shooting without a script. And that's just And that they And that right. they worked so hard to give it the sort of the window dressing of things that are familiar and nostalgic and exciting to fans without, you know, there wasn't like a house inside. It was like a... <laughs> 
like uh, old cowboy TV shows where they're like, you know, it's the saloon in the background and it's just like being held up by wooden beams. <laughs> There's yep, like yep. no saloon behind the facade. Totally. You could, you could make an argument that having the leadership of a producer who has the overarching vision for this whole patchwork of movies, it's ruffled some feathers. You know, it, it sent Edgar Wright packing from Ant-Man. Mm-hmm. It sent Patty Jenkins packing from Thor 2. Really upset Joss Whedon towards the end of his tenure there with Age of Ultron. You know, as much as I th- you and I both are like punk rock visionaries, give the artist all the room to play with that Marvel method, like it, it works. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm an anarchist, but that authoritarianism, that Stalinism of the MCU really works because <laughs> it needs an iron fist to kind of yeah. make it all the overarching 26 movie or whatever it is story to happen and that's the thing with with the mcu and especially with disney owning it therefore they have the resources to make it is if you're going to like something like that which is you know marvel's already like a corporate company it's it like it's you know one of the two biggest comic publishers and you know has been for a long time so it's not like it's some small indie if, if you want the indie then go see indie films art house films right. if you want the big spectacle and that's okay too. And and you know, there's definitely critiques of it and and things that aren't perfect and that I don't like and and I understand suck. But overall, I love it, all of it, you know. And that and that's why. And, and hey, I love that a lot of our or not a lot, but that a handful of our old guard, legendary, you know, living legend, cinema people came out in the last couple of years, trashing everything that Marvel things about because. For me as a fan, I want that. I want that give and take and that oh, totally. push and pull and that democratization. I want absolutely. I want those. That's more about I'd imagine their response to it cornering the, it being the paradigm of movies now, and that is a problem. Like it shouldn't be the only thing happening, and now it is, or it was. Who knows <laughs> what the future holds for <laughs> movies or TV at all at this point. Do movies exist? Yeah. (laughs) What The Mandalorian has been able to do, it gives us the nostalgia. It gives us the familiar things like the Easter eggs. It ties into canon for people who obsess over continuity and how things are supposed to flow together. While at the same time, tells a very linear, focused story, has mystery and uncertainty about where things are going. And uh, I, I feel like it really just hits all the marks Absolutely. in a way that the movies could have and didn't. I think what was so exciting about The Last Jedi is that it, it really, it broke all the Star Wars toys. And I think that that shakeup was needed to like, it did away with so much of the inevitability and the overanalyzing and the theory. I mean, I just loved sitting in the theater that first time seeing The Last Jedi and watching Snoke get cut in half like yeah. halfway into the movie. You know, we'd had a year of this fan base obsessively theorizing who is Snoke and what about, you know, anything from like it's Mace Windu to it's Anakin to it's the Emperor to, you know, all these like mm-hmm. wild, you know, I had a, friend, a good friend who's a big Star Wars fan who read every single piece of the new canon that was coming out 
after Force Awakens and leading into The Last Jedi. And he was so disappointed that all of these things that he felt were hinted at and were, uh, you know, where it all should have been going, that Ryan Johnson just threw it in the garbage. And I was just, I loved that he threw it in the garbage. I yes. thought that's what it needed. Sit down and enjoy this movie. Stop trying to second guess every decision. Stop Stop trying to uh, backseat drive your film going experience. Well, make a movie and, because you have a something inspiring you and pushing you to make it, like a story to tell, as opposed to, I have to take all this history and make something that fans will like. Yeah, he had something to say. And that I know it's something we have in common all these years. What I respond to is a point of view. Yes. It doesn't have to be mine. It just has to be convicted and authentic. And and, and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to be Boy Sets Fire, you know, Raging Against the Machine. It, it just has to have something important to say. You know, I oftentimes will go to the example of Corn because Corn's not a band that I particularly care about one way or the other. I'm not passionate about it. I don't like or dislike. But I can say that those first couple of records and those early tours and those stage performances, Jonathan Davis in particular, that was a guy on stage who was working some shit out. Yep. You know, he had totally. something to say. And if he wasn't up there saying it, he was going to be dead or in jail or, you know, who knows? And you just that visceral like, oh, this person is making this art because they have to. And, and that's that's all I want, you know, and that's what I felt with The Last Jedi is that, you know, it was made by someone who had a really singular, distinct vision of some things that he wanted to say about life. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. In the aftermath of Rise of Skywalker, a lot of the stuff that's come out about Colin Trevorrow's vision for it, you know, there's a, a bunch of things that about that that are really intriguing to me and exciting and could have been cool. And you get into this coulda, woulda, shoulda. And, you know, people talk a lot about if what the Lord Miller version of, of Solo would have been. Yeah. And, and of course, most famously, the, the mythical Snyder cut, Yeah, which, you know, that to me is one of those. It's like Chinese democracy. It can become whatever you want it to be because yeah. it's so mythic and grand and then you know what chinese democracy comes out and it's like oh okay yeah <laughs> it's just i mean how can totally. anything live up to that you know uh so but my point in bringing that up is so many of these things that we love and that we cherish from our childhoods and that are continuing in various forms today and all of us have these opinions about we didn't see how the sausage was made when we were kids we can sit here now and, and monday morning quarterback the it's so funny i i don't know much about football and haven't eaten sausage since 1984, yeah. but uh, <laughs> using those <laughs> colloquialisms. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we can sit here and like second guess and, oh, maybe if the caller, Colin Trevor or whatever. But something that I think about is, uh, you know, in all of my nerdery about Ghostbusters in recent years, especially learning things like, oh, this was originally written for Dan Aykroyd. John Belushi and Eddie Murphy to be the Ghostbusters. Oh, damn. And Eddie Murphy that. decided to do Beverly Hills Cop instead. And Belushi, of course, tragically passed away. And, you know, the Slimer character was done as this homage to Belushi. And Aykroyd's original script and vision for it was much more, he's a ghost guy. Like, it was a really straight ahead, 
weird go like the all the comedy and all the stuff that we associate with it like that wasn't him and now look you know it's fun to reverse engineer and, and kind of think about what could have been or whatever but man could you imagine if back then we had the amount of access to information that we have now for people to show up opening weekend for the original ghostbusters and walk in going well uh, you know Eddie Murphy was supposed to be in this and it probably, maybe it, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like having this like microscope that you, there's gotta be a balance somewhere of, of absolutely passion that drives it's you to definitely, know so much. Yeah. It's definitely had a negative effect. I mean, that was one thing I wanted to say much earlier in our conversation is a big part of what made it so special to us is that we had to seek it out. Like, getting into punk and hardcore, we had to seek out these different bands and these different genres and straight edge bands and vegan straight edge bands in order from very distribution. And like you had to go out and do the research. Whereas now, you know, like you said, we see how the sausage is made in every aspect of every single art form and thing we love. And and now I don't think transparency is a bad thing in any stretch of the imagination, but I do think it does color things maybe a bit too much where we, we don't let art be art. Yeah. And there's, there is a balance, you know, because I, I, as a fan, I love seeing this photo going around of King diamond, uh, you know, in his living room with his wife or girlfriend, no makeup. And there he has a Christmas tree and it's like this, you know, suburban <laughs> McMansion, and it's just like, ah, oh, it's so cool to see yeah. King Diamond like that. But of course, there's that other part of you that's like, no, no, I want to, I want the mystique that he's like a spirit and like haunting a castle somewhere that totally, <laughs> you know, yep. ma- materializes on stage for the gig. There's a real give and take, like you said, because the transparency is cool and important and exciting and, and gives us, you know, opportunities to do podcasts about Star Wars. But yeah, man, that that era of really seeking things out and really drilling down. And that brings us full circle to like what I was, what you were talking about, about learning about Star Wars as a kid in these periods of, of dormancy. And for me, you know, loving Star Wars and loving finding these properties like V that were, you know, kind of these marginalized sort of dustbin mm-hmm. <laughs> bargain things. There's a great essay that Pat Oswalt wrote for Wired Magazine maybe 10 years ago or something. And he talks about how it used to be. If you were, say, and I think one of the examples you use is Blade Runner. If you were somebody in the 80s that knew everything about Blade Runner, you learned that from going to, like, you know, a Perkins or a Denny's on Saturday night at three in the morning and sitting around with, like, some dude in a trench coat uh, that had, you know, gotten access to this book and knew this person that knew this, you know, or was on this, you know, I was in a DIY visitor fan club that, was just some dude completely unauthorized. You know, I sent him eight bucks a year and he sent me a little laminated membership card and I think a <laughs> monthly newsletter. <laughs> there was no yeah. news because not, nothing's happening with the property. You know, the newsletter would be like, the right end campaign continues to try to get Warner Brothers to, you know, resurrect this show they canceled six years ago. Yeah, he makes this point that it's like there was a magic to really being a nerd and an obsessive about things that you really had to work hard on. And he's like, now, if you want to know everything about Blade Runner, you can spend 10 minutes reading Wikipedia and then go on YouTube and and spend 20 minutes watching all the pivotal, important scenes. And now you're a Blade Runner expert. Yeah. Like that guy in the coffee shop. I mean, I had that a little bit post Star Wars with Twin Peaks with, you know, wrapped in plastic and which, uh, you know, I think a lot of kids in 
maybe punk and hardcore that I know had similar experiences with Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure Dune, you know, David Lynch doing Dune is what led me to that because Dune was kind of, you know, something kind of akin to Star Wars. I hadn't read the book mm-hmm. at, the, at the time. And I'm sure you know uh, David Lynch turning down Return of the Jedi. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. I did know that. <laughs> I love that story. You know, as Marvel fans, obviously we love the what if premise, mm-hmm. you know. And yeah, yeah there's, there's a fun what if David Lynch directed Return of the Jedi. But I like that just living in my mind. Like, don't absolutely don't go, don't go do that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I don't, don't tell me where Han Solo got his name or how he got his blaster. Like, I, I think that I want to know until I, until I know. And then I'm, then I, you know, then I I regret asking the question. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) mainly because you've lived with it for so long. If it was so important, it would have been in the original trilogy. Yeah. And give me new things to wonder about. That's great that we're talking about another Indiana Jones, but give this generation its own Indiana Jones. So, yeah, absolutely. You know. I mean, we can talk but, about, I think what you were just saying, what we've kind of been saying the whole time about the mystery of it and, you know, the, the lulls and the, in time between things happening were, you know, these fields that we could seed with our own imagination. Part of the we could have an entire episode about the mystery box and J.J. Abrams and how that is how he approaches things. But again, there must be a balance because he approaches it as that is the story as opposed to <laughs> aspects of it yes. leading to that. <laughs> is it what's interesting with DC's approach versus Marvel is, you know, they they were very big about Marvel is producer-driven. We're going to be director-driven and we're going to get directors and writers with visions and give them free reign to go play in the sandbox with these characters. And I think on its face, that's a great idea. Problem is that the filmmaker they chose to make the blueprint was probably the wrong choice. Yes, absolutely. Bigger problem. I think the the biggest problem with the DCEU is it was too much too soon. They saw what was going on with Marvel and irrespective of the fact that Marvel was like, we did Iron Man and then we did, you know, they built something. Yeah. And then, yeah. They really, to, by the time you got to Avengers, you knew these characters and that's now it was exciting to see them together. DC by contrast did one Superman movie. And then in the second Superman movie gave us Batman and Wonder Woman and yep. the Doomsday Arc and the death of Superman and cameos <sighs> from Aquaman and the Flash and Lex Luthor is in it and uh, hints of the Joker in a Robin's costume and it's just yeah, too it much. Just, it, it was too, too forced. It was not organic too, in any way. And it, and it's a shame because you know Wonder Woman I think is pretty good. Uh, I think mm, Aquaman yeah. was watchable. Birds of Prey was all right. Yeah. But I, I think the the problem those movies are running into is that the bar is so low. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When we, sit, when we sit down and watch one of those movies and it's not a total disaster, we're like, Oh, that's pretty good. Yes, all right. Yeah. In a vacuum, I don't know that I would say Shazam or Aquaman were good movies, but in the wake of what came before, I was like, Oh, pretty good. Nice job. Okay. Yeah. That's all right. Yeah. It was fine. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's, and that's the kind of art that we all want to make. Isn't it? <laughs> exactly. The art that makes someone say, that's fine. (laughs) When you sit down and play somebody, your new record, is that really what you want to hear? (laughs) Yes. That's fine. (laughs) I'm a big fan of the comedy central roasts. 
the James Franco roast and someone's roasting. Jonah Hill actually is roasting Seth Rogen for the Green Hornet. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he's like, and isn't that the goal to make terrible movies <laughs> that don't lose too much money? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> 